0: Oh okay so there's there's two penis jokes. Yeah. Okay.
1: Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books, short stories or other works with a special guest. This month we're doing something a little bit og. Um, we're playing a board game, The Witches. And our returning guest is writer and editor Steve Lamatina. Welcome back, Steve. Hey guys, nice to be back. Yeah, it's been, how long has it been? It's been a long time. Years. It's the
0: four times we <laughs> recorded in person. I haven't recorded in person for literally years. This is, oh, really?
1: yeah, listener. We are recording in person today for the first time, uh, in a long time. Uh, in fact, since the last board game episode, which was the only other one we've recorded in person since 2020. <laughs> but I wasn't there, so that's true. Mm. Yeah, so this it's, is it's my a, first one in like three, four years. It, it's an exciting time. Steve, what have you been up to in the last <laughs>
2: <laughs> few years? Uh, yeah, probably some similar stuff to everyone else, staying at home a lot, working from home a lot. Getting in a new place, uh, looking after a dog and a cat,
1: little chalky lab. That's exciting. Yeah, it's yeah cute. just, you know, parent stuff. Speaking of cat, there's chaos in the background. <laughs> uh, we are, as is traditional for long-time listeners when recording live <laughs> in person, uh, we are in my kitchen, a different kitchen <laughs> to the one we used to record in, but still in the kitchen nonetheless. And uh, yes, chaos is here. You might hear him in the background. That's all right. Uh, but we have come together in person because we wanted to play the game before we discussed it, because that is what we're here to talk about. This month is one of the five official Discworld board games. There's a sixth official Pratchett board game coming out. There's a Good Omens board game coming out based on the TV series, so we might have to cover that as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'll I'll track down a copy of that. That won't be too hard. It's coming out quite soon. <laughs> yes, it'll be brand new. But look, let's shall we? Before we get into it, shall we begin with the equivalent? of a reading of the blurb by reading the back of the board game box. It's not easy being a trainee witch. Early mornings, long days, low to no pay, and a definite lack of health and safety provisions. One day you could be tied up trying to cure farmer poor chick's sick pig. The next you are fighting back an invasion of elves. Fortunately, you're not alone. And just when you feel things are as bad as they can possibly be, Granny Weatherwax will appear to give a helping hand.
0: That feels a bit like sort of accurate and sort of not
1: accurate. Mm. <laughs> in terms of your experience of playing the game. <laughs> like
0: my personal experience of playing the game was, yes, the Granny Weatherwax card did actually show up and help me a number of times, but I don't feel like that's your
1: guaranteed gameplay. No, no. I mean, there's only so many Granny Weatherwax cards in the, in the box. Uh, we should describe the game for listeners. Um, and if you are a subscriber, there is a video uh, unboxing because I had a fresh copy still wrapped in the plastic that I unboxed. And we'll post some pictures in the episode notes as well, so everyone else can have a look at least at some pictures. But basically in this game, it says, if you keep going on the back of the box, you take on the role of a young trainee witch, uh, all of whom are characters from the Tiffany Aching series. So there's Tiffany, Pachulia, Anagrama, and Dimity, and uh, you play as one of those witches, and you go around, Lanka solving problems as part of your witch training And you get points depending on how many problems you've solved. And there are easy problems, which are the sort of everyday things witches have to deal with, like sick pigs and sheep and people having injuries and pregnancies and dying. And then there's the hard problems, which represent some of the antagonists from the books. I forgot to mention this until much later in the podcast, but hard problems are placed on the board face down, so you don't know what they are. They're only flipped face up when you visit their location though some cards have the ability to let you peek at or flip up a hard problem from a distance. And what kind of problems are hard problems? Back to you, Pastor Ben. So there are elves and vampires, uh, and then there's the specific ones from the Tiffany Aching books, including The Hiver, The Wintersmith, and uh, The Cunning Man. Mm. Uh, Because this came out in 2013, which was the year after I Shall Wear Midnight, the most recent uh, Tiffany Aching book that we've covered on the podcast. So no spoilers for us. In this game. No, which is good. It's true. But you have to be careful because if you use magic to solve your problems, you start cackling <laughs> in, the, in the form of getting cackle tokens. If you get too many of those, it's bad. And uh, some of the problems can get worse. There can be a, a crisis, uh, which makes them a little harder to solve. And you get to roll dice and move around the board. It's interesting because there's a sort of a semi cooperative aspect to the game because while you are going around solving these problems, gathering points for yourself, there are some conditions under which everyone loses the game. So that's a brief overview. How do we... This is an interesting thing to tackle because obviously there's not a plot so much. Uh, but there was an experience that we had of, of playing the game. Um, and this was both of yours first times. Mm. I've, I've played mm-hmm. it once before with four players today. We played with three. Um, should we start by saying who we picked as our character and why? Liz, you picked... or actually, Steve, you picked did yeah, didn't us, you? picked so, yes. Who did you pick and why?
2: So I picked Tiffany Aching. Uh, which I wasn't sure if it was a ching. <laughs> but I heard you say aching, so yeah, clearly I am the uh the Pratchett noob. So <laughs> I chose Tiffany because look honestly, she looked a little bit more basic witch than <laughs> everyone else and that's what I am at heart really. <laughs> a, basic. a basic witch. <laughs> basic witch. So yeah. Great, great. Um and you did get a special power though. I did. Invisibility. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, I'm not a creep. I promise.
0: <laughs> you saved that up well and use it like the exact used, right
2: time. I used it
0: on my last go. <laughs> you did. You did. Yeah, and um, whereas Ben used his on his first go, and I used mine in the middle, so I feel like that worked out quite nicely. Um, I chose Anagrama Hawkins. I chose second as well. She just and I liked her vibe. I mean, I'm not in the book. I hated her vibe in the book, <laughs> as you're supposed to. But I was kind of like, oh, she's an interesting one. She's not like the the protagonist, and she's illustrated quite in a fun way because she's like, what's going on with her? She's sort of slyly looking to one side. So I'm like, okay, she looks like she could play a board game and not forget the rules halfway through.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I need that boost. (laughs) Uh, Well, nobody forgot the rules halfway through. We did very well. We did. Yeah, I found it very playable, but we'll we'll get to that, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And I chose last, and of course I chose, uh, if you've been listening to any of our episodes about the Tiffany books, you'll know who I picked because I wanted to be Petulia Grissel, Everyone's favourite pig witch, uh, <laughs> who I love. I love her so much in the books. I have to say, I, lo- I do like this illustration of her, but when I first saw it, I was like, that is not how I pictured her in my head at all. So, yeah, interesting. And in fact, someone was asking about who's who on the box art, Steve Lee on Twitter, and I posted a picture. But then uh, the lovely people at Discworld Monthly, the Discworld uh, newsletter, came in to inform me that all of the characters on the box art are all based on... Discord fans who would show up at the conventions some of whom cosplayed as their characters and they mm. even gave me the names of, of some of them so um, Petulia Gristle's illustration is based on a real person I love this. Um, so that's, that's cool, cool. Uh, and, and so is uh, Granny Weatherwax and uh, I think all of the ones on the cover so that was yeah, pretty awesome mm.
2: So I don't really know much about the books obviously but does that mean that the covers themselves don't have any images of the characters in them at all?
1: They do, but they're uh, – so there's this sort of um, – it's interesting because the book that you read with us, "Only You Can Save Mankind, mm-hmm. has kind of very non-standard Pratchett cover. Like it, because it's one of his children's books, it used a different illustrator in the original edition to most of the other books I've ever had. Um, and it doesn't show any of the characters on the cover. It, it shows like one of the aliens, I think, mm-hmm. in the original <laughs> cover. Um, but there's been two main artists who've worked on all of the covers and they have done illustrations of the characters – um, but the um all of the younger witches have always been drawn by Paul Kidby the second illustrator and they, they have a very definite look. I mean I think Tiffany does look a lot like the book Paul covers Kidby's one. Yeah. yeah, but the other characters are I don't think he. Well, he probably has drawn them, but they're not on any of the covers. So you'd have to go and search out some illustrations. Probably there's illustrations of them in the latest Discworld companion.
0: I have this terrible quality that I will resist um, the description that an author writes of their character in the book and just insert my own over the top of them. Like, like if they tell me the hair color, I immediately forget unless it's like really significant to the plot, or they tell me multiple times. Like I don't know what Anagramma looks like. But I didn't picture her with dark hair.
1: Mm. Oh, really? Yeah. What did you, did you think she'd be blonde or something? Yeah, like a
0: platinum blonde.
2: Hmm.
1: There you go. Yeah. Well, Tiffany is the really the sort of the biggest character in the books. The other three who, witches who are here, and the one we didn't pick is Dimity Hubbub, um, who I don't think she she hardly gets any dialogue. Certainly not in the first four.
0: Yeah, and her power sucks. It's just you
1: play first. Mm. Well, it doesn't suck, but it's not. You get a magic token. It's that's true. Yeah, because what was your... your, (laughs) And a cackle. um, Yeah, I got a cackle. (laughs) You got a cackle on a magic token. Yeah, so you start with... Because when you use magic to solve your problems, it's slightly more effective than using Hidology, but it also sort of turns you to the dark side in terms of how the game works.
0: I think it was worth it. (laughs) I got to go second.
1: (laughs) That's true, yeah. Whereas my token is just I can um, automatically solve one sick pig problem for free. I don't even have to roll any dice. Which was good, but the sick pigs are actually pretty easy to solve. Like I think they're the second mm. easiest problem in the game. <laughs> so I just used it on my first turn and then I was like, okay, now I don't need to worry about it for the rest of the game. Mm. Um, but I also picked her because her player color is green. Mm. And uh, that's my favorite color to be in board games and in general. Mm. Yeah, It's peaceful.
0: Yeah. It matches the match that the thing is on too. <laughs>
1: um, let's talk about the map which we have got in front of us, although it's obscured with a whole bunch of game tokens and pieces right at the mm-hmm. moment. Because it's a, like you don't often get to see a map of a location from books, um, certainly not in this much detail. Like if it's a bigger, like, you know, fantasy books, it's usually like a whole continent or a whole world, whereas this is the kingdom of Lanka, so it's a mm-hmm. fairly small place. We didn't get into it this episode, but the game's board isn't the first published map of Lanka. That honour belongs to the third, and hardest now to find, of the original Discworld maps, A Tourist Guide to Lanka, first published in 1998. And it's all laid out. I mean, Liz, this is a question for you, I guess. Is this how you imagined it? I never really have
0: a macro view of places. I'm bad at seeing how they fit together, and which is why I love in fancy books when they provide me a map, because I'm like, great, now I can... I don't have to even try and imagine it because I won't. I just refuse to. Um, well, it's not that I refuse to, it's I can't. So in terms of the colour palette and the general atmosphere, it is. it does match up with the feeling of the books, which is not quite your question. But I think, yeah, in terms of layout, I didn't know where anything was or how big it was or scale or anything, but it feels right in terms of how it is illustrated.
1: Mm. And Steve, you, obviously not having read these particular books, mm. Um, what did you think when you saw this map?
2: Well, I mean, I enjoyed some of the comedy in the, <laughs> in the names, particularly the long man. I thought that was quite uh, quite an interesting spot. It also yes. just made me wonder like what are these what is in these books? like <laughs> it's yeah the the humors it comes through definitely. I'm the same as Lizzo. I love a good map at the start of a book. I'm a bit more obsessed with kind of knowing where things are, so I will just continually go back until it's in my head. So, yeah, I'd kind of be interested to know, like, if I was reading this book, like, how this would map out.
1: <laughs> well, um, it, yeah. one of the interesting things about it is that Tiffany doesn't always spend time in these places. Like, Lanca is where she does a lot of her witch training in the second and third of her books. But in the first and fourth one, she's at her home, which is in the Chalk, which is, like, quite far away from there, mm. um, which doesn't even appear on the map. For me, one of the interesting things about looking at the map was like, well, this really situates it at a particular time in the books as well. It's when she's training with the senior witches up in the hills. So, yeah, I thought that was, that was pretty interesting.
2: Did that feel like it suited the theme of the game as well?
1: Yeah, because that's when she's with the other training witches. So, it makes sense for them to all be running around, you know, trying to fix problems uh, on their own, but, you know, with the other witches around to sort of help them out if they get stuck but also it, it did there were a few interesting things there that it meant that some of the antagonist characters that come in so there's the easy problems which are just general sort of which problems to solve and then you've got these hard problems which are specific villains from the books and a couple of them are from before the tiffany books and a couple of them are for after this part that this seems to be about
0: Hmm. And the cliff side made it more dramatic as well. Like that's not something I imagined.
1: Yeah. As well. Mm. They well they do talk about Lanka Gorge a lot, but yeah, you don't really think about it much into, except where there's a few scenes, mostly in Lords and Ladies, I think, where there's the they talk about the bridge and the troll who sort of like stops people <laughs> as they're going across.
0: I have mentioned this, I think, previously on a podcast, but if you are reading a fantasy book and there is a map at the beginning, I strongly recommend photocopying that map so then you can refer to it while reading the page that you're on and annotate it without having to flick back to the beginning or desecrate your map.
2: Especially if it's an ebook.
0: Mm. Oh Yeah, I had to print some out from the internet when I reread the Garthnik's Old Kingdom series. I had to print out the maps each time and then mark them up, which was great.
1: Yeah. Well, now you could mark it out here. You wouldn't even need to mark it out. You just put the pieces on the board and move them around so you can see where they're going.
0: Yeah, every book should provide uh, this sort of map that you have tokens for. That would be great. Yeah. Getting it out on the train. Like when you're <laughs> – they'd have to be magnetic.
1: I'll be into it. And th- this is uh, – it's worth saying that we played – this is the standard edition of the game – this one's from Mayfair Games, which is a game company that doesn't exist anymore. They got bought out by one of the big European ones. But the developers of the game and the original publishers were the designers' own company. So it was designed by Martin Wallace and it was published through his company, Tree Frog Games. And just like for the other Discord game that they published, which is ankh Morpork, Pork, which we'll get to in another episode... They did a, a special edition, like a limited edition of it, collector's edition, which is mostly the same, but the map was bigger and it came in a different shape box with different art. And the main thing about the components was that instead of these great little wooden witch's hat tokens, which I kind of love, that are just in a different colour for each player, um, they had little miniatures, like pewter miniatures of the different mm. characters that you'd move around as well. But I... I don't know. I look. I'm a big fan of wooden pieces in in board games. Makes it really feel like a proper euro game (laughs) to
0: me. Did you like these? I did, though. I did run up, and it would have been the same if we had the pewter characters. I ran up against my normal issue of playing other people's tokens (laughs) (laughs) regularly. It's like right here, you're the red one. I'm like, all right, going to move the blue one. if it was always the blue one. (laughs) Seems like that's me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but I did like them, and I like that they're consistent with different colors. Because I mean, there's, I mean, it depends on how deep you want to go into symbolism. Because they're all the <laughs> same, but a little bit different. But at, at the core of them, you know, they're all witches.
2: Well, I don't know. Like, like I said, I haven't read the book, so maybe it's just in line with Anagrama's character to be just like moving around <laughs> other people's business.
0: Yeah, I was trying to just advantage myself, but you kept picking up on it. It's a shame. <laughs>
1: Um, Yeah, there's no, I mean, it's interesting because there's that cooperative aspect to the game where, you know, if you don't all pitch in, you can all lose together. But there's not really a whole lot you can do to help each other out. I, I should describe, so listen, on your turn, you get to take two actions. And your action involves moving somewhere and then doing something at the place that you've gone to. So if you move to a location where there's a problem, then you have to try and solve that problem. And we'll get to that, I guess. You can move to an empty space in which you just do nothing. And there's a, <laughs> there's a specific rule for that in the rule book, which quite tickled me, which just says, we're sure this is self-explanatory. Or you can move to where there's another witch, in which case you have to have tea <laughs> with the other witch, which is the main way that you can get rid of cackle tokens. So you sort of have tea with each other, check in on each other, make sure nobody's, you know, about to build a gingerbread cottage and start roasting children in the oven <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there's not a lot else you can do to help each other out, is there? Yeah,
0: because I kept trying to find out if I was like, oh, can I like play a card out of turn to help someone else, um, which is not in line with my character, um, or can I give someone else a card or that kind of thing. But yeah, you can't really work together in that way or like trade
2: cards or
0: yeah. anything like that. I mean, I guess you could illegally, like if you do your own rules, but.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously I'm not a game designer. But I just thought it was, I don't know, almost a missed opportunity, like, while having tea, you couldn't just, like, have, like, swap one card. Mm. I think it could have been fun, a fun way to, like, mix it up and help each other.
1: Mm. Yeah, I did find a a very brief interview with Martin Wallace about the game, talking about how he really tried to make it a very family-friendly game. Oh, did
0: he? With the long man (laughs) illustration
1: that's on there? (laughs) Well, I mean, they've got to be true to the books as well.
2: (laughs) He was stuck between a rock and a heart place. I
1: I mean, I feel like like if you're going to play with your kids a Terry Pratchett-based board game, whatever game it is, you're going to have to explain something (laughs) to your kids. And, look, I don't think this is for anyone... Uh, well, look, games are tricky to, to age. I think the box recommends, and this is always, you take this with a pinch of salt, um, listener, but it does say 13 plus on the box. And I reckon mm. anyone 13 and up is going to have a giggle about. <laughs> Definitely. A, uh, a thing called the long man, which looks, let's be blunt about it because you can't see a picture while you're listening to the podcast. It looks like a dick. Let's just. A dick uh, and balls, is Yeah. That's true. I mean, if, it, yeah, if the balls weren't there, it wouldn't look. <laughs> yeah, it would just look like the standing stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Which is nearby. True. It's interesting to see that sort of thing. It's one of those things where in print it's a very subtle it's not, it's not, it's not subtle at all. It's, it's like
0: tee hee hee, I'm picturing it in my brain, I'm not
1: Yeah, not like <laughs> here it is, but then it doesn't you know, but it, but there's no interaction, it's just there. Like most of the place names, you know, you, you need them because uh, each turn a problem appears somewhere on the board and you you flip over one of the cards and one of the things written on the cards is a place name and that tells you where that problem's going to appear. So you need them for that. But they're all places, as far as I can tell, from the books. Although there's a few that are not very prominent in the books. And then the cards themselves are mostly characters from the books. But again, there's, a, there's quite a few that we came up against or, or played. And I'm like, I don't remember this character. <laughs> <Primst>. <laughs> Who is this? But that's fine. The obscure characters are mostly, it turns out, from Lords and Ladies, They are Brother Perdor, the religious figure who was going to marry Magret and Verence before being knocked out by an elf, and who is mentioned exactly once in the book. Corny, the only shopkeeper in Lenka, who appears in two very brief scenes. And Mr Brooks, the royal beekeeper, whose name I had forgotten, but who has a few very memorable moments, and probably instilled my mostly joking hatred of wasps. The other character is Eric Wheelbrace, a famed but doomed hillwalker who supplies many of the notes in the aforementioned a tourist guide to Lanka.
0: As someone who hadn't read the books, did you find it enjoyable or or more confusing like did, can you just
2: enjoy them as like as yeah, they are? Yeah, I think definitely it, it it wasn't confusing in terms of not under, like not knowing the story. I think it definitely would benefit people, though, if they had read the story, because I find myself now, like, wanting to know more about the characters mm. and the places. So, I think that's successful, in a way, from the game makers to kind of create that kind of interest. Mm. Um, but, I mean, like, you know, what I want to know, like, what was Tiffany Aching doing at the long man Ooh. in the book?
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> well, see, this is the thing, right? She wasn't, because this is drawing on two sets of books. So, there's the the witches' books, which are part of the regular, you know, for adults and everyone kind of series of the Discworld. But then there's the Tiffany Aging books, which are for younger readers or young adults, depending on which version you read, as we discussed in a previous episode. Um, And she never goes to the long man. The long man's from one of the witches' books. In fact, the only people who go to the long man is – I can't even remember who she takes with her but it's, it's Nanny Og goes there of course
0: don't they clean up like the long man in the most recent one at the festival Like the- no
1: that's the giant at the chalk
0: oh okay so there's there's two penis jokes yeah okay Yeah. the whole time I was like oh no I know what's going on here but I don't I thought that he was restricting it to one but he was not well, what is this? the point of the place though <clears throat> well as you can see it it's
1: right there <laughs> uh, It's uh, <laughs> not look, where is the point <laughs> this, is, this is a massive spoiler but it's, it's like an old barrow like a burial mound but it's a place where you go if you want to talk to the king of the elves. <laughs> okay. Who's like the horned god kind of old school fae Celtic religion kind Did of he pagan sh- god. Did he show up there during the the game? That's uh no. No, he didn't. It's interesting cuz the the king of the elves here is just another elf like mm-hmm. cuz one of the lose conditions for the game is some of the hard problems are various kinds of elf and there's like the queen of the elves, the king of the elves, there's a named elf who I think appears in Lords and Ladies and then there's just some generic elves. And if you ever had three or more elf problems face up on the board, you immediately lose because it's an elf invasion and then everything, it's over now. But it feels weird that the King of the Elves is in that pile because he's quite apart from the other elves in the books. And that's Mm. part of the point is that Nanny goes to him for help to deal with the elf problem. Mm. Yeah. Mm.
2: So, yeah, it's things like that that probably don't resonate as much with me because I don't have any understanding of like what is an elf invasion because I don't understand that.
1: And there's no – one. Well, this is one of the other things. The cards are beautiful, but they've already got like four different bits of information that's used in different ways in the game. And I love that. I'm a sucker for here's a card that is used for everything in the game and it's got lots of different stuff on it. That's great. Mm. But they don't have any room therefore left for any kind of flavour text that explains what they are. Like they have a name and then they have an illustration, but that's all you get that's part of the fiction. Um, I think they've done a good job of marrying – the kind of special power each card has to who is on the card. I think those things match up quite nicely. But apart from that, it's... Yeah, there's not much to go on, I don't think, if you haven't read the books. Mm. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think the illustrations are great and the names are funny and interesting. Like, having... Roland be a re roll. I don't know who that character is, but you know, pun. So, yeah. But yeah, you're right. I I wonder if it would have made a difference for me if there was a bit of flavor text on the cards just to get a little bit of a bit more of an understanding of kind of who these people are and how they fit into the world.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about how a turn works because I think it's central to your experience of the game. uh, Because what happens on your turn, you take those two actions, you move somewhere, and when you go to a problem square, you have to try and solve it. And the way that works is you have four dice, and they're special dice, they're, they're nice sort of light wooden dice, they're six-sided dice, but instead of having one to six, they have two to six, and then in place of the one, they have a little icon of a cackling witch face, and you roll two of them at first to see what number you get, and each problem has a target number on it that mm. you have to roll or get over in order to solve that problem. But if you roll a cackle, that counts as a zero, and you get a cackle token, which means you're a step closer to, you know. Madness. <laughs> madness, yeah. But the you roll two dice and then you decide if you're going to use any of the cards in your hand for the symbols on them that can help you bump up your score. And there's two of those symbols. There's the hedology symbol, which adds plus one to whatever you've rolled. And there's the magic symbol, which has two little octograms. I do like that they paid the close attention to that because eight is the magic number on the disc, not mm. five or seven or anything else. And that adds plus two, but you also take a cackle token for using magic to solve your problems, Mm. Um, which is very thematic, kind of fits in with the way that witches do things in the books, which is magic is really a last resort. And if you're dealing with like a regular problem, you probably shouldn't use magic to solve it. But it's, yeah, it's quite thematic. But you've got, you roll those two dice, then you decide if you're going to use the cards and then you roll the other two dice. So, you've kind of got this, in board game terms, we call this a bit of a push your luck mechanic because you can also choose at that halfway point to run away, mm. which I think is the thing, in, it's the one thing in the game that feels the least witchy to me. I can't imagine any of these characters really running away from anything, but I, I do like that it's a, an option in mm. the game. Yeah. Yeah. Which we did use quite, quite cool. often. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, all the time.
0: Because we kept rolling cackles.
2: (laughs) Well, you kept rolling cackles.
1: Double cackle. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. The queen of cackle. (laughs) You did end up with a lot of cackles, I can say, by the end, Liz.
0: I think cackle breeds cackles because I started with one. So, it was just kind of like, well, yeah, they're going to keep coming to me.
1: That was the, actually, you know, because that is the other communal way that you can help each other is by having tea. So we go into another which space you have tea. Get rid of some cackle tokens, and we did seem. I mean, we did do that mostly for ourselves, but also like for each other, because hmm. it's a, that, and that's another sort of communal aspect. Because you've got this limited supply of these tokens. Once it runs out, what happens when you need to take one is you take it from the person who's got the most. But if you have the most and there's none left in the general supply. That's when you get a Black Alice marker, which is a square marker, um, which is worth minus one point at the end of the game. Nobody got any in our game, although I think it was a bit close there at the end for the
2: two. Yeah. We uh, really went hard on the cackles at the end because we had nothing to lose.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And everything to gain. (laughs) That's fair. Also, as you're having your turn, at the start of your turn is when one new problem comes out on the board. Mm. And, look, this was – I found this – probably more so in the first time I played with four players. Not as much here, but certainly there were points in the game where I really felt it. It felt like the problems came out very, very slowly. Yeah, And there are a lot of turns where it's like, well, there's not really any easy problems on the board. I've got to go and investigate these hard problems and see if I've got a chance of solving them, which is, I mean, it's good. Kind of from a narrative point of view, I'm imagining... Well, nobody's like broken an arm, but there are some elves over there or there's a vampire up in the uh, Lanka Caves, which seem to be full of horror in our game. <laughs> I'd rather um, solve a sick pig right now rather than yeah. deal with that. Um, but how did how did that feel to you when you were playing? Like, Did it feel like you had enough options each turn?
2: I think at the start, as you mentioned, it did feel a little laboured in terms of getting them out and it felt like there was a lot of... Similar places getting repeated, which means then oh, we haven't talked about the mechanic yet. Oh, yeah. But you know, when you put a problem out, if it's in a place that a problem already exists, you add a crisis. Is it called?
1: Yeah, a crisis it. token. So instead of putting out a new one, you make the existing one more difficult to solve. Mm. Mm.
2: And I found that we had quite a few of those, and they really did affect the win rate. I guess on some of those problems. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> there was one one lord that. Oh. He, definitely tried and failed many times. I ran away a lot.
1: Oh, Duke Felmet. He
0: sent me to the dungeon. Yeah. But at least I'd cleared one of the crisis tokens Doing so I was like, oh, that's worth it. Like, I've cleared that, so it's easier. And then immediately, next go, crisis token on him. (laughs) Terrible. Not worth it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It was interesting how they kept coming up. Like, when we had a board that felt like it was mostly empty and a problem could go anywhere. That we pretty consistently drew a place that already had a problem in it. Mm. Yeah, that was a bit weird. And Duke Felmet actually, the Felmets are the villains that also feel slightly weird because they're they're from like one of the really early witches books. And Mm. I think they both, this is a massive spoiler if you haven't read this, Steve, so I apologize, but I think they both die by the end of the book uh, from memory. Certainly, at least one of them does. And so to have them in this, which feels so much, so clearly like it's set quite a while after, I was continually asking myself, are they ghosts? Why (laughs) is that why they're so difficult to deal with? Duke did look pretty dead. Yeah. He's very zombie ish in the, in the tile. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's it. I mean, he's always quite pale, I think in the book because he's, he's gone a bit mad Macbeth style um, with Mm -hmm. guilt. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. But good illustration though. I Mm -hmm. quite, it feels like it's very spot on for the character.
0: And the difficult ones, like, as in, like, other than the Wintersmith and things, but like, they they are a bit sinister. Like, the people ones, you're like, oh, yeah, that's a a bad person who needs to be solved. Like, they're a problem.
1: (laughs) They are. Which, actually, speaking of problems, we should talk about the easy problems as well. This is what you spend most of your time doing as a witch, which include, (laughs) uh, like I said, sick sheep and pigs, broken limbs, fevers, pregnancy. And death. Some grammatical fun there. Mm. I think they sort of make this narrative of you running around doing general witchy stuff, but then there's kind of a I don't know. The the question did come up, like, and this happened in the first game I played of it. We were like, we're solving the problem of pregnancy, (laughs) 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 which could go a lot of different ways.
0: Mm. Sometimes you don't want to think too deeply into the sentence structure. Like, what is solving death? Are you helping someone to die or are you helping them to not die? Getting
2: rid of the body.
1: Just dealing yeah. with what happens after they've died, yeah. yeah. I think that's how I thought of it, you know. And dealing with pregnancy as a problem is probably mostly delivering a baby. Yeah. Um. Mm. Although, Steve, you pointed out that it's the same woman on all of the tokens. <laughs> who, with a lot of
2: kids. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, and I she can pops see up why up. that's a problem.
0: Yeah. She pops up everywhere as well. She's across all of Lanka. Is she mm. clone or...? <laughs>
1: it could be clone making clones well it's one of those things too there's no it's not explicit how much time is passing so it's hard to know (laughs) like if you when you have your turn you know if you're walking to somewhere you just go two spaces on the board so you're kind of intimating that well that's probably not that much time it's probably like a day Um, maybe each turn is like a day in the life of a witch you know in which case if it's the same woman giving birth maybe it's just it's just a really long labor
0: (laughs) but she's just like maybe it'll be a better labor if I go to the other side of (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah <the> <laughs> i'll go for a walk maybe that'll uh, bring the pregnancy on yeah yeah
0: standing stone yeah eat some chilies see how you go
1: i did i did say a friend of mine on instagram was posting some pictures of when uh, she was pregnant a long time ago and it uh, was taking she, she was quite a long time overdue and she was just like i'll just do something anything to bring the birth on and i think she started go-go dancing uh was the thing that she'd had a photo <laughs> of uh which i'm like well did it it whatever work? works I, I, I think it did yeah mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I mean that's probably what Tiffany was doing. Yeah, like just leading that, <laughs> leading the go-go dance. Just come on, <laughs> I think it makes sense. <laughs>
1: I'll, I'll pay it.
0: Yeah, I solved three pregnancies in a game.
2: Yeah, hmm? Liz, oh. you were the pregnancy solver.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I didn't do any pregnancies. I did a few, quite a few deaths, which is good because they're the. It was, <laughs> it was good for me points wise. Okay, because it's mm. the it, it's the easy problem worth the most points and therefore the most difficult one to solve, but still a lot easier to solve than. The hard problems. And then for hard problems, I mostly was smashing elves um, and a couple of vampires.
0: Yeah, I just dealt with a felmets and one vampire.
1: Oh, yeah. That structure of solving a problem, like you're rolling a couple of dice and going, do I think I can make this? I found it quite exciting. I thought it was it's its pretty fun because you know, there's not a lot of games where it's like you get to roll this many dice, but roll half of them first and see how you go. I like that. I don't think I've seen that in another game, actually.
2: Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a good way to kind of split it up and it's that risk and reward thing that you mentioned before and having cards that interacted with that by allowing reroll sometimes or having to work out like if you had other cards in your hand that would allow you to kind of add points at the end. Hmm. Um, I know that Liz was having a few like maths, problems uh it is it is very counting heavy um yeah that's true and with some of the uh you know the hard problems it it does get a bit tricky when you add crisis on there and you're trying to add it all up with all the die in your hand but Hmm. um no i really liked i mean i kind of i love using die for this this kind of thing in in board games i think it worked really well with this
0: it was a nice balance of luck and problem solving as well because i don't like when it's all just like on one roll having it split meant that Luck came into it twice, but you can like interfere in the middle, which was kind of good, or you could like cut your losses. If the first one was like, terrible, you're like, Oh, well, luck has let me down and I can't make up for it with what I've got. So I can just like get on out of here and have and do nothing as the rules tell me to do.
1: Yeah. But, yeah. yeah.
0: So I, I like that. And it was exciting each time. If I were the math problem, very real. Cause there's sometimes you have cars that are like, you can add on plus two plus two at the end of your go if you need to. So you're thinking about future numbers and present numbers and past numbers, and also if you've solved enough problems at some point, that means that it's less points to try and do a thing. So if I were to play again, I'd probably bring a little notepad just so I can, like, scratch out everything and not have to just keep counting over and over again because I was like, okay, I need 13, but I'll have plus four at the end, so that would be nine, but I haven't done that yet, so I need to be able to roll a, And I can it kept happening. I was like, it's 13, and they'd be like, no, no, it's nine. I'm like, what?
1: Mm.
0: And everyone loved that, and it was great.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's very, uh, very Dungeons and Dragons-y style maths. You know, it's like, oh, I've got to roll this much, and I've got this bonus, but I've got this special power that can get Yeah. How many cackles
0: are left in the pile, and like, you're just counting everything around you?
1: Yeah. I think the thing I kept tripping me up is that, you know, uh, if you've played a lot of games or if you've done any kind of game design with dice, then you kind of know the standard probability distribution of like 2d6. Like it's very common amount of dice to use. And you effectively you're doing that twice. But because the dice are special and they're effectively numbered 2 to 6 and 0, it's different. So it's like, uh, I don't know how this works. Uh, <laughs> I can't figure out what number I'm most likely to roll because it's not 7. Yeah, so I like that that was a little wrinkle as well.
0: Mm. It was easy to pick up and play because, like, often I'll need like to play once to get it, and then another time to play it properly. Whereas I felt like you get it straight away and you can play it properly mm. immediately. That mm. so might just
2: be yeah. me. No, I felt the same. I thought it was it. Yeah, it worked out pretty well. Yeah, mm. easy to keep moving on quickly.
1: Yeah. And interestingly, I think it took about the same time to play with three players using the standard rules. And we were, we were playing, if you're a listener, if you've got a copy of the game or if you're going to play it, we were playing using the standard rules, but there are some optional, uh, different rules that I quite like to try actually, cause I think, I think they'd be fun. They're only little tweaks, but I can already see how much they would change the experience quite a bit because there's a full on cooperative version where you don't bother scoring but you do have to make sure there's not more than 4 hard problems left on the board at the end otherwise mm. everybody loses mm. and 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 there's still the standard rules of there's a couple of ways you can immediately lose during the game and that's everyone loses so in the standard game either everybody loses or you get to the end of the game and somebody has the highest score so it's interesting that there's a couple of uh, little variations there and there's an expert um setting as well which just sort of takes a bunch of extra counters out and it's like what's the same game but now it's a lot harder Mm. because i I actually did find that you know the we never really in danger of running out of crisis counters but they were Um, everywhere even though they kept coming out in the same places we we always still had like a good you know six or seven of them left in the jar i think Mm. yeah that's one of the things the harder version does is take them out because if you ever run out, if you ever have to put down a crisis counter and you can't because you don't have any left, you lose the game because there's too many crises going on <laughs> in Lanka, You've done a bad job as the witches. So, um, how does
2: the hard version change it, sorry?
1: So, it takes some of the crisis counters out of the supply. So, there's a lot fewer of them oh, left. less. Mm. So, it's much more likely that you'll run out of them. Sure. Um, and it also, you take out some of the cackle counters as well, I think. Um, so, you ah. have fewer of those. So you're more likely to run out of those as well and get some negative points. I think I'm not sure about that one. When, oh, yeah.
0: When you play with four people, did you find it harder to move around? Because the thing that we didn't mention is that you can't if you're moving across the board in your go, if there's a problem in the way or another witch, you have to stop there unless you have a special card mm. or ability
1: to get through them like invisibly. We didn't find it that much more difficult because there was only one more player. And we kind of had split up at the start of the game. So, we were kind of all off on different parts of the board. But uh because there's only, you know, the connections by design, they sort of, you know, there's one big central place where you kind of have to go in if you're going to go off to another part of the board. It's a bit like Melbourne's public transport <laughs> network, actually. <laughs> if you want to go anywhere on the other side of the map, you got to go into the center first. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. It was fun.
0: More cups of tea. And I would recommend having a tea while playing this game because it does make you want to have a cup of tea. <laughs>
1: yeah. And we did. I had two. <laughs> I do want to talk about the cards before we move on to sort of uh, general things. So there's – um, I again, I like them a lot because they have multiple uses. But also they're just kind of beautiful. So uh, we'll post some pictures of them. But at the top they have the little icon that tells you what generic thing you can use it for, which is either a broomstick, which lets you – Instead of moving two spaces on the board, fly wherever you want. Or they've got Hydrology hedology symbol to add plus one to your roll or the magic symbol to add plus two and take a cackle token. Those are pretty self-explanatory. Then they've got the name and the illustration of whatever character or thing it is. There's a few objects as well, though most of them are characters. And then they have a special power in the middle. And really, it's the icon and the special power really, the only thing you use them for once they're in your hand of cards. And those special powers have a name and I think the purpose of the name is, is a shorthand so that you can go, oh, I've got that. And also because a lot of them have the same power, once you've learned what, what it does, you can just look at the title and go, oh, yeah, I know. But it then does explain what they do too. And then at the bottom, they've got the name of a place and that's how you use the cards to determine where the problems are going to come out.
0: It's very thrift because like sometimes there would just be a stack of like place ones. Mm. It's a good way of doing it.
1: Yeah. It does mean you go through the deck a lot. Uh, and you have to shuffle it and redo it. Because I think think we went through the whole deck at least two or three times Mm. over the course of the game.
0: I like that too, though, because it means you have a better chance of seeing more of the cards. Because I find it sad when you're playing a game sometimes and you see a really small percentage of what is out there. Because sometimes you just be playing a game once in your life. So (laughs) it's kind of nice to see them. And looking through them now, there's ones
2: I didn't see, of course. but Yeah. Yeah. I think you learn as well through, well, from the start, going through to the end, I stopped being so precious about the cards in my hand. And I think that going through the deck so quickly helps you realise that you don't actually need to be that precious about the cards in your hand. You kind of use them for different things and they kind of become a little bit more disposable. Mm -hmm. And I think getting into that mindset helped me as I went and I realised, oh, there was one point when I had like nine or ten cards in my hand, which was really handy and it really helped trying to get some of the hard problems, the big problems, using the cards as points to add to the die. So I found that really useful way to get through some of the areas after like initially thinking like, oh, I need to hold on to these ones because I want to, you know, keep this for a future situation.
0: Yeah, I had one card that let me discard a bunch and then immediately replace them. So I kind of was trying to, by the second half of the game, I was like, let's try and get rid of as many as I can yeah. in a go so I can see what I get back and if that's going to be better, which was a lot of fun. Though sometimes if I'm playing a game to discuss it or just sometimes because I'm a bit chaotic I'm like let's play it the most chaotic way possible so that we can see what is possible
1: <laughs> you do, I think you started out a bit that way Liz on one of the really early turns you were like oh, I'm just going to go for it like so I can experience the game but then I think after about two or three more turns you were just like I'm going to try and win this
0: no I was kind of like because there's a thing that we haven't discussed which is power of three. Oh yeah where there's cards like some of the cards generally like the witches' ones not all of them but some of them say power of three on them and the idea is if you get three of them you can play that and you automatically solve one of the hard problems. Mm. and I had two I think almost from the beginning and I was like well obviously I'm going to get another one this is going to be great and just it just didn't happen and this whole game no one at least yeah. played it
1: mm. yeah I think uh, when I play with four players I think it did happen twice I know I did it once and I think one of the other players did it once it's, it's reasonably rare I mean you do cycle through the deck I think this is one of the places where having Read the books Gives you a slight advantage In that you can Kind of intuit Oh okay, cast I see which kinds of The witch characters Are going to have those Because it's mainly The witches from You know The Lanka mm. Coven So it's Granny Nanny Magrat And Agnes also um, Has the mm. Power of Three Although In a lovely touch There's a card for Agnes Knit And a card for Petita X Dream mm. Which I thought was Delightful Because this is sort of She's got two personalities mm. In the book Steve oh. um, And the cards Sort of represent both of them on the card, but which one is preeminent is switched around. I mm. thought that was kind of good. And very much how I imagined her. I, I like that art a lot.
0: Mm.
1: Did you have a strategy? Like we we haven't said who won or what scores were at this stage, but did you have any strategy during the game?
0: Not really.
2: No. <laughs> no. To start with, all I was doing was focusing on the easy problems mm. just because I found them. Well, I was getting them quite quickly, winning them most of the time. For some reason, the the die rolls. Uh,
1: yeah, you were rolling really hot at the start. Yeah, of the yeah not at the end though. <laughs> no, that but we seem all to sort be a of trend.
2: started dudding
0: out towards the end. Yeah. One point, yeah. Steve said double six, and I rolled a double six. and It was great.
2: <laughs> I didn't get a double six though. No, uh, no. no. <laughs> so I think my initial strategy when once I realized that was I'll just get as many of the easy ones as I can because that'll increase my hand size mm. because I don't think we've talked about that either mm. but um, yeah every two easy problems that you solve, you get to increase your hand size by one card. Um, so you start off with three in your hand mm-hmm. uh, and you can move up to a total of seven. Um, so it makes uh, a big difference yeah. yeah it does it does. So I think that was my very basic strategy to start with, which mm, don't know if it solved me served me that well in the end.
1: Yeah look I, I did the same thing in my first game. And I got I got heaps of um, easy problems quite early on. Uh, and there's a limited number of problems that come out during the game because the game ends, unless you lose earlier, the game ends when all the problems have come out. So you do see all the ones that you're playing with, um, although there's a few left in the box depending on how many players you have. But I, uh, I yeah, I did that in my first game. And I mean, I had lots of cards, but I didn't have lots of points by mm-hmm. the end. Um, because I and so this time I sort of tried to split it a bit more and so I tried to go after some hard problems much earlier on and I think that really helped because while they're a lot more difficult, they are also worth a lot more points. Mm. So I think that helped me a lot.
0: In terms of short-term strategy, I because they, there were so few problems and everything was quite spread out, just moving towards where it seemed like there would be something to do in your go or mm-hmm. whether there'd be the highest yield of things to do in one go and less risk of having to spend one of your moves doing nothing. That was, I don't know if you'd call that strategy, but that was something I thought about mm. consistently across the game.
1: Yeah, I think it took me a couple of turns in my first game to realize that, oh wait, you know, you have two actions on your turn, so you should be trying to solve two problems because then you've got two more problem tokens on your player board, which helps you keep track of how many cards you get. You know, that really helps you. The other thing that I kind of did end up taking advantage of, although I needed Liz's help to remember <laughs> this, is when you, um, you have a similar bonus from, uh, solving hard problems. So each two hard problems that you solve give you a plus one on all of your problem solving roles. So that makes it a lot easier to solve problems later on. Mm. Um, and yeah, I think that it's, it was interesting to me how much the plus one or plus two did kind of help because, it, you know, the numbers, the goal numbers range from like at the low end, like a seven all the way up to like, 22 for something like the Wintersmith. Um, I don't think we even had the hardest problem turn up. Oh, there she is. Lily Weatherwax is a 23 without even a crisis on there. And she's worth seven points, which is a lot for one problem. So, yeah, some of the cards give you a really big bonus. So, there's a lot of cards that give you just a plus two. Instead of using the normal sort of card mechanics, they give you a plus two and you can play it at the end of your card rolling. There's a few that do that. But then there's a few cards that give you plus four just against a specific problem. And I had the one for Lily Weatherwax, which is uh, Mirror Magic, I think. Mm. Um, That makes sense. Again, makes sense from the narrative of the books. But I I never found her. (laughs) I couldn't get to it because she was behind two other hard Hard problems. problems. And again, you can't skip. Boss battle, it makes sense. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, we didn't
0: get there. And you can't even use your invisibility because there's two. We should talk about how um, if you, for some of the hard problems, if you defeat them, there's other things that happen.
1: Oh, yeah. Normally, uh, so if you try to solve a problem, you get halfway, you can decide that you're not going to win and run away and that doesn't have any consequences for you. If you try and solve a problem but you fail... Then there are consequences. And if it's an easy problem, basically you just run away in shame. Hmm. Um, so you're forced to run away and you get a cackle token for being a bad witch, I guess, hmm. and giving up. I'm not, I didn't, thematically that didn't make as much sense to me, but I, I it, it made sense from a game design perspective. So I was okay with it. So that's what happens. And if you can't run away because there's nowhere to run away to, then you end up going somewhere else on the board, but you get an extra cackle token. So that's what happens with an easy problem. But with a hard problem, there's also a specific consequence that's based on which particular character or villain it is. And some of those were – we didn't deal with too many of them because we we had pretty good luck. Thelma's kept getting me. That's true. (laughs) Yeah, so if you failed against – me. The Lord or Lady Felmet, they send you to the dungeon of Lanka Castle and you have to use up part of your next move escaping.
0: Because it's not connected to anything. you can't. That's the only way you can get to it, presumably. There's yeah. no road to
1: there. I that's guess right. you could fly there if you really wanted
0: to. <laughs> Hello, um, I'm here. i like to waste my next go. Thank you. <laughs> yeah,
1: I guess so. Well, it's not a space in the normal sense, right? It doesn't have the little white box around mm. it. So, I guess you mm. can't go there unless you're sent there. But, yeah, you either have to use up a card or half of your next turn escaping. So... It's, it's a bit of a penalty.
0: There's also like some good consequences for defeating some of the. Oh yeah!
1: yeah. If you, if you defeat, so they're all based on characters from the books. So there's the various elves who don't have any consequence except that if there's three of them face up on the board, you immediately lose. That's enough. I mm-hmm. <laughs> don't think we need anything else. But there's also the cunning man, the hiver, the wintersmith, Lily Weatherwax, the Felmets, and then there's the magpie vampires from Carpe Yugulum, the Count Vlad Lacromosa, and Bella. If you fail to defeat them, they just get harder. They get a crisis token on them, which normally only happens if you draw a place that already has a problem on it. But the other special rule for them is normally you can only have one crisis token, which adds plus two to the difficulty. But if you fail to defeat a vampire and they've got a crisis token, they can get another one. So they just get more and more difficult. Mm. But if you succeed in defeating the old count, Count Bella the Magpie, then all the other vampires disappear. Mm. <laughs> so, again, you know, it fits thematically in with the books and also just the Vampire idea of vampires. War. Yeah. So, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah.
2: I got rid of it, but we'd already gotten rid of the other ones. That's so right. Yeah. wasn't that helpful. <laughs> there weren't any other vampires on the board.
0: <laughs>
1: hey, but what happens
0: if you defeat him and then there's one gets flipped over later or you just deal with him as it's usual? just the ones that are there
1: already. Yeah. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you have to know they're there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it's only face-up ones. Okay.
2: I guess that then, because there are some cards that allow you, I had quite a lot of cards that allowed me to flip up some of the hard problems, but I never use them. Same. Mm. But I guess that's an interesting way to think about the benefits of doing that mm. because it could, apart from just knowing what's around, Yeah. if they're, you know, face-up and you have, you know, something like the vampire getting rid of them, that could have been really helpful. But you
0: could also elf yourself. Yeah. You could.
1: <laughs> yeah, because uh, that's a risk. You don't want yeah, three elves. risk and reward. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Well, that's the basis of good game design, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, overall, how would you describe your experience playing The Witches? If we we're going to sum it up.
0: Am I like, itching to play again? <laughs>
1: oh, yeah. Yeah. That's good news because we can play it again <laughs> anytime. We've got a copy. It's true.
0: Yeah, I, I think my criticism echoes Steve's one earlier, which is like, I don't have many, but that it would have been nice to like, if you're having tea, be able to swap cards or something. That I think that would have enhanced the experience a little bit more. Like, because it's not fully collaborative. You can still going around your own business, but there's an element of more conversation, more strategy that could come in in quite an easy way with what's already there.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think I really enjoyed it. Even though we mentioned before, like it did feel a little bit labored at the start in terms of getting the problems out. It still moved at, A pretty fast pace, it felt. And even though we'd actually played it for quite a while, it didn't feel that long. And I guess that's always a positive Mm. if it moves quickly and you're enjoying it. I mean, I don't think I lost much by not having an understanding of the world hmm. um, because if you play board games and you read fantasy or science fiction, you just understand that like, well, this is the world. And so if there's three elves that are face up and you lose, well, that's just because that's what
1: they that's what say is happening. Do. You
2: know, like yeah. <laughs> I don't need to understand like the the law behind it. It's just like, well, this is just what in this game they say happens. So that's what happens. And I don't think people are going to be, you know, not enjoying it or, yeah, for that reason
1: yeah yeah i think it, it occupies a really interesting family game space in between something like pandemic mm. which is one of my all-time favorite games but it is a fully cooperative game where you only win or lose together and as a result the game is quite a lot harder and the problem that you have to solve to win it is also quite difficult and you do have to collaborate and give cards to other players and but that's the whole game whereas in this one You know, you're going around and solving these problems, which is a bit like treating the disease in in pandemic, but the pressure from the new problems occurring is not quite as full on, and there is that competitive aspect where you kind of want the game to last to the end so that you can see if you won or not, but every now and then there's that nice spice of, oh, hang on, there's a few too many crisis counters out, or there's two elves face up on the board. And we didn't really have that in this game. Mm. But in the four-player game I played, there were several times where there was two elf counters face up. And we are like, someone's got to deal with that elf or we are all going to lose. And that was quite a nice kind of inflection there. And even though, you know, on your turn, it's pretty simple and straightforward. That's a strength for a family game because, you know, if you want to play with a variety of ages, you want it to be simple so that everyone's on the same page. And while I think with the first game I played, there are a few times when I felt like I would have liked it to be a little more difficult or a little more complicated. I think on reflection, I actually really like where it is. Every turn is pretty fast. Like, you know what you're doing. There's some dice rolling and playing of cards and you're a little bit invested because you you want to know, are you going to solve that problem that I want to get for points or are you going to solve that problem that's going to prevent us all from losing? Mm. So I think my first impression was, I wish it was a little spicier. And my second impression is, Actually, I think it's pretty great the way it is. Mm. And maybe you could tweak it a little bit like, you know, you were suggesting with the being able to share cards or something. But the fully cooperative version might feel a bit more that way because it's a bit tighter and because you're not worried about the point score. So mm. I think I'd like to try the variant rules in the rule book too. Mm.
0: And I found other people's goes exciting. Like some games you're like, when's it going to be my turn? Like i have got to get through other people's turns. But you, it's like watching, like you you watch closely. Well, I found myself doing that.
2: Yeah, I yeah. think because they're not super long turns, it's easy to kind of stay invested in it because, you know, there's some games out there that, you know, it can take a very long time for everyone to have their turn and you do lose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Lose the interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Yeah, but the, I think, like you were saying, that not every game has to be, like, stressful. Mm. And I think I can see why you were thinking, like, oh, maybe it could be a bit more spicy because I sometimes feel like that about games too. But, you know, this... Uh, You you know, talking about Pandemic again, when you mentioned having the elves out, for example, in your last game and there was like two there, the difference between that and Pandemic is that in Pandemic, basically they would force you to pull out a third one at some point and (laughs) everyone would be in chaos. (laughs) But here, you're only going to turn over a third one if someone decides to go and turn over a third one, which probably is not going to happen until Mm -hmm. you deal with the problem. And so sometimes it's nice to have a bit more breathing room and just take it for what it is. It's like, well, this is not... This is not that you know, stressful pandemic game, um, yeah. which I love as well. But yeah, there's room for, for both kinds of enjoyment.
1: Yeah. And I think the cooperative and extra competitive versions or the expert competitive one, as they call it, I think the fact that they take out a lot of the counters, like you have fewer crisis counters mm. and also they can, they can stack up so you can always have more than one, those things would feel a lot tighter. And I think mm. that would be an interesting way to play. But I also like the standard rules.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I can't imagine being able to stack up the crisis. Like, having one on (laughs) the hard problems was, (laughs) like, hard enough. Like, it was rare for us to be able to get through them. So, having more than one, I don't know. Like, you'd have to basically use all your cards up every turn. Mm. And roll high. And roll high, yeah.
1: would also make the game a lot longer because it ends when all the tiles Mm. come out. This was something I was thinking about because the way that you set it up, you set up a different number of tiles on the little track that you take them from depending on the number of players. And it's balanced out so that there's like an even number of tiles per player. But because when you take out a space that already has a problem, you just add a crisis token and you don't bring out a new problem, that extends the game by a few more Mm. turns. Every Well, one more turn every time that happens. So you don't end up with having the same number of turns.
2: Yeah, that would have really. So, in that variant, you could keep adding crisis to the same place. Yeah. That definitely would have extended our game because we, there were so many times when we pulled over a card of an area that already had Oof. a hard problem and a crisis token on it. So, that yeah. would have, yeah, we probably would still be playing it now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> While weeping. Or, yeah. or we would
1: have lost quite <laughs> yeah. quickly. Oh, one yeah, of the elves.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we probably would have lost. Yeah.
0: Can you play this as one player because it's got things you, as one player?
1: Yeah, there's a solitaire version of hmm. the rules, um, which is basically the same as the full cooperative variant, So, um, except that you do keep score. So you're trying to um, last until the end of the game and then you're just trying to get the highest score you can without losing along the way. And then the cooperative version, pretty much the same thing, except there's multiple players going around different places. Yeah.
2: I haven't played many. I've got a few, like a bunch of games that I can play one player. I think I've done it once with one game, but I just didn't enjoy it that much. Yeah. It kind of loses something without having that interaction for me when I'm playing board games.
1: I get where you're coming from, because I really do like playing games with other people, but I've become more and more of a a solo game player. In fact, I I now own several games that are solo Mm. only or designed primarily as solo games. Uh, My favourite one is probably Nemo's War, which is based on 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. You sort of pilot the Nautilus around the seas and you have to sink ships, free enslaved peoples, and you search for treasure and explore the wonders of the underworld. Underworld? Explore the <laughs> wonders of Under the Sea. It's great. That's a dedicated solo game. Mm. It's more common because it widens the number of people who are going to buy it to have a game like this that yeah. is for multiple players but has a solo set of rules. But look, that's um, that's The Witches. We usually do a favourite part of the book, but was there a favourite moment during the game that you remember? I don't know if it's a favourite
0: moment, but it was a standout moment when I rolled two cackles. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: think you did it twice. Uh, yeah. yeah, I've just blocked that out at least one of second them. second time was definitely a standout for me. That was
1: amazing. <laughs> yeah, because you were like, oh, I just need this many to, to yeah. do it. Like, it was, I it was think like it's four or
0: something. I needed like some really small number.
1: Mm.
0: And I just rolled two cackles. I was like,
1: no, thank you. With zero this. points and two tokens. Yeah, <laughs> the worst.
0: But I think it was good when, yeah, I, I mentioned it already when Steve said, yeah, two sixes and then I rolled two sixes. So yeah, I've had both that extremes.
2: That's true. Yeah, Yeah. It didn't help me win though. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you needed, a,
0: oh, yeah,
1: needed so who, a who won card. Ben um I did win, um yes, by a landslide. yeah it I, was I, a landslide is that Well, compared to my score, I would say it yeah, was I' a say
2: landslide. it was a landslide
1: mm, I, look, it was pretty good. It wasn't that close. like it was oh. only four points more than you. Yes. but its
0: it's such a tight game, like it's all calibrated so well, like
2: mm. a few points' is like it's huge, mm. really that's true. I think I just lost badly. But that was okay. I, yeah. I didn't, it didn't affect my enjoyment at all. Well, it no, surprised me really... because
1: I thought you were going to do pretty well, Steve, because you had a lot of easy problems mm. and then you also had some hard ones. Yeah. Mm,
2: I, had, I think we all had pretty even amounts of cards by the end, but yeah. I had a lot of ones. Oh, you which had a I lot think I would of really cheap think ones. I would, yeah, I did too many too many fever dreams at the
1: start, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which are only worth like one point each <laughs> yeah. for treating someone's fever. But you're,
0: both of you, what were your favorite moments or favorite elements of the game? Not necessarily like from our particular
1: one, but like or, I did like that. A lot of the times, I took a punt on a a hard problem that was upside down because the easy problems, when they come out, they're face up. You know what they are. The hard problems are face down until you mm. go and investigate them. I took a punt on a couple of those and two or three of those times they were elves. And I just sort of had this sort of, yeah, Petrullia Gristle hates elves. And then some, and then we were like, maybe they caused the pig sickness and that's why she hates them so much. <laughs> Cause I love those moments in a game where even if you don't know the world that it's set in or it's set in its own world, you kind of construct a narrative out of what happens in the game. Mm. Um, I really, yeah, I dig that a lot. So I enjoyed that.
2: I think mine was more of a mechanic that I enjoyed. I think I like one, as I mentioned earlier, I really, like the point where I realized the benefit of having a lot of cards. Mm. And I think the cards are balanced really well as well in terms of, we talked about how you, is it headology Mm. and magic? And you can kind of use those to gain points. But then there's the other cards that have the broomstick on it, which allows you to fly the different places. Mm. And I always found that you had to make a choice between flying somewhere but those cards would also have like the plus twos on them yeah as part of the action and so you yeah kind of balancing that do i want to travel somewhere or do i want to use that for something else and and i just loved when i had like this handful of cards that i could just use to like try and smash one of the hard problems
1: yeah yeah and it felt it you felt earned like because you weren't Like, I think the dice really add a lot to this game. Like, sometimes it can make a game just feel too random and chaotic, like you were saying earlier. Mm. But I think in this one, because you have all these different ways of tweaking your Mm -hmm. luck, it does feel really satisfying when it works out Mm. and devastating when it doesn't. Uh, (laughs) Like, when you, when you've gone, okay, well, I only need to roll. Okay. I need to get like 10 more points. I've played plus six. Points worth of cards so i just need to roll a four and then you roll like two or three and you're like no nah. or two cattles yeah that's
0: you literally describe the situation
1: <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah had, or a zero and effectively and,
0: and i think that sent me to the dungeon as well like it was just yeah, like
2: yeah. Yeah. that was your favorite place
0: <laughs> i was like <laughs> how could it be worse
2: at <laughs> least had decorations up there yeah. felt right at home
0: yeah when you came to visit i was like get out of my house <laughs> <laughs> Um well look we did get some
1: listener questions. Not heaps, but we got a few, so we should um we should answer those. There were a lot of people on Reddit who didn't really ask questions um and on Facebook too who kind of gave their own impressions of the game. And I will say just before we get into listener questions, I found it very interesting that there's seems to be a real divide mm. on this game. So the other one mm. that Martin Wallace designed, Ankh Morpork, which was the first one, generally very well loved and sold a lot of copies. Like I think on the back of the box of this it says it sold like 50,000 copies or something quite phenomenal. But this one seems to really have divided players, like people who are really hardcore or, or serious, in inverted commas, like board gamers, they find it too simple and a bit boring. Mm-hmm. And I I I like, yeah, I think I've explained that I can see where they're coming from, but I've come around on this. Um, and then there's other people who are playing it in a family setting and they're like, we love it. It's like one of our favorite games. And I think the marriage of the theme and the level at which it's pitched makes it a really great family game Mm. which does mean that serious hobby gamers probably won't enjoy it as much because it's not quite as complicated as what they're looking for so there's i saw that interesting division in opinions about the game Mm. and it's interesting too that it's from martin wallace who is known for a really broad range of different games he's designed uh, one of the highest ranked games on on board game geek a game called brass which is about the Mm. beginnings of the steam revolution in the uk and a sequel to it, Brass Birmingham. And then at the other end, he's done like really narrative-based storytelling games like uh, Once Upon a Time, which is a fairy tale card game, or um, uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which is a storytelling role-playing game. So he's designed everything, Mm. and this is sort of in the middle somewhere between those two extremes, I think. Um, Yeah, so I thought that was very interesting.
0: I feel like this could work as a really good sort of like easing Friends into reading Terry Pratchett. Um, or using friends into playing board games, like it feels like it's an entry point to possibly two different things. Mm. But yeah, Lisa's
2: staring at me, reading very <laughs> <Gary laughs> Fresh.
0: You'd like eyes, them. I just, I know you'd me. like them. Oh, I,
2: honestly, I'm sure I would. It's actually, you know, it's. I still need to go back and look at the recommendations from you for which I should read first. I just need to jump in because I'm sure I would enjoy it. It's it's hard to tell though, like playing a game like this. I know I made a lot of jokes about the long man and I do make a lot of dad jokes. So I, but I don't know if I always enjoy that stuff in literature or the things that I watch. And so I do wonder like, what is the humor like in, in these books? Because it does seem like a little bit childish almost or dad jokey. Is that kind of the, the theme or is that what it's, what it's like?
0: I would argue that there's a broad range of humor. Like he does enjoy sneaking in like a real daggy joke, like the long man, but that is not the caliber of the jokes generally. Sure. So there's quite a lot of puns, but again, they have a, it's a broad spectrum of the mm. kind they yeah. are. And sometimes the humor is slower burn and simmering underneath the whole plot. Mm. So yeah, it's,
2: but it's always a part. Like, would you say that most books have Humor within them. Yeah. Oh, they're all humorous. They're yeah. yeah. Comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah.
1: But there's a lot of serious stuff in them too. Yeah. Like sure. we, we just read the fourth Tiffany Aching book and there's some, Ooh, there's t- some really like tough stuff in it okay. as well as some great gags. But yeah, I'd agree. The, the humor is in a range. And when you put it on a board game like this, particularly where there's no flavor text. So there's no jokes mm. written into the game. The only jokes you're getting are the really easy surface level sure. ones. Makes like, sense. Here's a picture of a dick of balls as a landmark. And here's a place called A Rock and a Hard Place and another place called The Place Where the Sun Does Not Shine. And those are definitely jokes from the books. But, yeah, there's a whole lot of other kinds of jokes too.
0: Yeah. Like there's one, again, I think it's from Good Omens, but it's also in a few of his other books as well where it's like if you reach into the glove compartment of a car, you will find a Queen CD, <laughs> <laughs> Like, which I think – It's hard to categorize that kind of humor, but it's like there's observational humor that's Mm. sort of like, is it a joke or is it just like people are weird and I have noticed this, yeah.
2: Mm. yeah, In this world, that's what happens, yeah. Mm. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Just before we get into the questions, I should just give the full credits for the game. So it's designed by Martin Wallace, the art is mostly, I think, by Peter Dennis, but also Ian Mitchell is credited for some of it as well, and it was managed through the Discworld Emporium, which is run by an old friend of Pratchett's who used to make uh, a lot of the early merchandise and managed the art to make sure that it was all in keeping with their feel for the disc world. And this is something else too. The reason there's not that many, even though this is a massively best-selling series of 41 novels released over, you know, like 30 years, there's only five board games based on it. Mm-hmm. And you could easily make a whole bunch more. And the reason there's only five is that Pratchett was very much, I don't just want to give the license away to anyone and let them mm-hmm. do whatever they want. I want to know that it's someone who cares about the property and is doing their best to do a good job. And indeed, uh, we haven't mentioned this, but there were supposed to be three games designed by Martin Wallace. So there was Ankh-Morpork, which was the big success. There's The Witches, which seems to have been not as big a success and, and a little bit polarizing, but still, I think, a great game. Mm. And there was going to be a third one, which from things that I've read on the internet would have been about the gods of the Discworld. Mm. And I think he did design it. And I think there's a story there. I don't know what that story is. We might get to that at some point about why that didn't happen because the other two games that were published around the same time as this were by a different company, Backspindle Games, and designed by the same pair of designers, neither of which was Martin Wallace, and one of which is universally described as the very worst Discworld game, Mm. which is probably the next one we're going to play for the podcast. (laughs) Uh, And then the other one is supposed to be the second best of of all of them. So we'll see. Yeah, so I don't know what's going on there, but interesting stuff. Mm. Yeah. But let's get into some questions. we got a few good questions.
0: All right. So the first one comes from Steve Leahy, which we signposted earlier. I've never seen this game. So which, which is which on the box lid?
1: I did answer this one online with an image, so I'll, and I'll stick that annotated image uh, into our episode notes. But the uh, the witches on the front, if you're looking at a picture or if you've got the box, the back row is, of course, the classic Lanker coven of Nanny Og, Granny Weatherwax, and Margaret Garlic. And then the front row are four of the younger witches from the Tiffany Aching books. So we've got Anagramma Hawkins, Tiffany Aching, Dimity Hubbub, and Petulia Grissel. All of whom appear in the books, but really Tiffany's the protagonist. Anagram is kind of an antagonist in a couple of the books. And the other two are, well, Dimity's a very background supporting character. Like I said, I'm not even sure she gets any dialogue or very little. Petulia is rather more important, but still doesn't appear a whole lot. But it's nice to see them all. And yes, the illustrations are based on real fans. And I did write down their names. So I can tell you that Tiffany Aching is based on a fan named Kate Oldroyd. Uh, Patchelia Gristle is based on a fan named Victoria Lear and Granny Weatherwax is the sadly late Pam Gower, who was a, a very prolific and long running Granny Weatherwax cosplayer who mm-hmm. died, uh, I think, just last year or early this year. It's nice that they've kind of been immortalized in this mm-hmm. way. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah.
0: So our next questions come from Molokov via Discord. So which card has your favorite illustration and which is the best character to play in your opinion? And then, did you manage to get a collector's edition with the pewter minis? They're possibly the best bit of the game.
1: Oh, well, now I feel bad that I didn't. Um, You can still find that collector's edition with the minis if you really want to go hunting on eBay. But because it was a very limited edition, I think they only made like 3,000 copies, I think. They're not the easiest to find. But they are still out there. They do show up, but a little bit expensive. So this is just a standard edition. But as I said, I really like the little wooden witch's hats. They're very cool. Now, look, there's a lot of great art – I do like this game's depiction of the Knack McFiegel. But also, I think, you know, as I've said on the podcast before, I just really like seeing other artists' interpretations of the characters. The Agnes Nick cards are pretty great. But yeah, so just nice to see a lot of the characters who you don't otherwise see illustrated, like Miss Level or Casunder. <laughs> he's, he's not quite how I picture... He looks quite different to the Kid B illustration, but I do like him. Um, and then there's some characters I'm like, I don't know. I don't. Like, I've read all of these books and I don't remember who you are.
2: Well, I don't really know any of these characters, but I quite like Hearn the Hunted's illustration. Oh, yeah, oh. that was a favourite He looks, <laughs>
1: the a bit eyes. Like, looks a bit like Rolf the Dog from The Muppets, don't you reckon? Yeah,
2: or that Will – what was that Australian –
1: Oh, oh, Wilfred. Wilfred? Yeah, yeah, the one the, the guy
2: dresses up a dog looks like that. <laughs> and I thought the Igor in Scraps was quite a good illustration as well.
1: Yeah, again, it Don't does know not – but... Not how I pictured uh, Igor in the books, but I did like that. He looks a bit like a dodgy car salesman as much <laughs> as uh, an Igor. Yeah.
0: It's hard to choose a favourite because I haven't seen all of them across the, course of the game. They're all fun to look at. There's like little details in there. Um, right at the end I got a Kelda card, which was quite fun because it's like – her and pros- potentially rob anyone um, oh, yeah. with some flowers, which was quite good. <laughs> but the one that speaks to my heart the most that if I hadn't read the books, either way, I'd, there's one called Morris Men. And I just always enjoy Morris dancers um, from the real world and in the books. So I think that's the one that I enjoyed the most. Because what are they? Like, are they the same as in our world? Or are they the same from the books?
1: What special power do the Morris Men have?
0: Reroll. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Also, I just want to comment. It's not my favorite thing, but Magrat does not look anything like how I pictured her at all. But yeah, she I has a very good power. So
2: yeah. her card also looks quite different to the, like the face yeah. on the
1: box. Yeah, that's an interesting. Yeah. I wonder if it's different only the um, box art that's based on the mm. the real people and the cards mm. are designed. Because interestingly, the the main characters that you play as those are the same illustrations on the box mm. as they are on your little player boards. Mm. Which is a good segue into, do we think there's a best character to play as? I think there's a worse player to play as. Well, well, yeah. I will just <laughs> dimity because there's special powers go for... I, look, it's not terrible, but it's not... It's just boring. I think yeah. that's the mm. problem. And But, I mean, that kind of suits her character in the book. Like, she's kind of the, the regular witch who just gets the job done. There's nothing particularly special or interesting about her. Uh, that's the impression I get anyway. And she talks a lot, I think, from, from memory. I, I, I know I said earlier that I don't think she gets any lines, but I think that's because she's a little bit forgettable. Um, now that I think about it, I think she does have a few lines and it, one of her things is she just talks a lot from memory. I'm going to have to go back and check that. Sorry if I'm getting that wrong, listener. So I think that's the way you, nobody really wants to pick her because it just seems a bit boring. Yeah. I
2: just didn't choose it because I was also like, I don't want to go first because I don't know how to play this game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's totally <laughs> valid and reasonable.
2: I feel like though, honestly, I don't know if there's much difference between the characters because I had the invisibility but also like a bunch of cards that I got also Mm. had the invisibility option. So it's an interesting point actually because it does make me kind of think maybe it would have been better to have them have more interesting and kind of Mm. individual powers to really like make a bit of a difference uh, between playthroughs. But I don't feel like what we chose made much of a difference to my playthrough.
1: Yeah. One of the things about having individual player powers for characters is that often they help a player decide on their strategy. So if you're playing Pandemic, for example, you will have a special power that always applies, always through the game. So you might be playing the medic who has a big advantage in treating diseases, or you might play the scientist who can cure a disease with fewer cards than other players. And those sorts of powers make you go, oh, okay, so I should concentrate on doing this because I'm better at it than anyone else. Mm. Whereas these powers were all kind of one-off. Like they determined that you go first or you had a power that you could use once during the whole game. And they were also, I think, and this is part of like trying to keep the rules simple for a family audience, they're all things that work the same way as other things in the game. I mean, my power as Petulia was just free cure a pig. And it's very thematic. Like mm. her whole thing in the books is that she's really good at looking after pigs, but it was also, I'm only good at it once. And then for the rest of the game, I've got no advantage mm. doing it anymore. So it's not like it's within my interest to go and pursue sick pig problems because I I won't be better at it than anyone else. And also it's not a good strategy anyway, because they're only worth one point each. Mm. So that is where those player powers fall down a little bit because they don't really give you a direction and they feel like they're just a little bit of an add-on. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but it doesn't really add a lot to the game, I think. So to answer your question, I would think actually there isn't a best one, but Mm. obviously the best one is Petulia because she's the best one.
0: (laughs) Well, I would have thought Anagramma was the best one because, you know, it sparked joy to look at the illustration. And also, if you are the red hat, you'd never pick up some other hat and move that instead of yours.
1: <laughs> why <laughs> would you do that? <laughs> yeah, why would you?
0: <laughs>
1: oh, dear. Oh. Um,
0: so our final question comes from Sven via Discord. Since there are games with just a bit of thin marketing fluff bolted on, so like Monopoly XYZ Edition and other games, which wouldn't work without any lore knowledge, do you think the game would work as a game without this witch fluff?
2: Would you enjoy the game with zero knowledge of the Witcher series?
1: Well, you could speak yeah. to that for us, Steve. <laughs> yeah. This is why
2: we invite yeah, you. Yeah, look, I think... Yeah, definitely. I mean, once again, it really depends on the kind of game that you like, the kind of game that you are. I think for me, like I said, it didn't really detract too much from the experience. I still enjoyed playing it and it didn't drag on or anything. So, yeah, I think definitely you can play it without having an understanding. I think having that flavor in there, though, would definitely enhance the experience.
1: Um, look, I mean, when I played it the first time, I played it with three other players who were familiar at least a bit with the Discworld, but had not read. Specifically, the Tiffany Aching books, so um, they weren't really familiar with the material, and they had a good time. They enjoyed it. Mm. There's still some characters I don't remember, <laughs> some really, really minor characters from the books who they put in, but I that didn't detract from my enjoyment. I did say, like, while we were playing it, I, I think I mentioned, oh, kind of, you could make a good like Star Wars themed version of this because there's that. You know, you're gathering those cackle tokens. It's like you're being tempted by the dark side Mm. because you only get them when you use the more powerful cards to enhance your problem-solving abilities. But you do also get them for failing, which I thought was a bit rough. Yeah. (laughs) But makes kind of sense. Like you're getting angry and frustrated, which actually makes it make more sense for the witches now that I Mm. think about it. So, I think you could theme it with other things. I think you always need a theme. Yeah. And uh when I was reading that interview with Martin Wallace, he does like to consider the theme first. And I'm a bit like that too. Like I always come back to the player experience. That's always my number one thing for when I'm designing games, but I do like to be heavily inspired by the theme. And I don't generally design a game if I don't have an idea for what the theme of the game should be. So I think it works really well with the theme, but you could absolutely change the theme and still have it be a good game.
0: Yeah. For me, I'm, I think it was enhanced by the familiarity of some of the things because you could go, oh, it's that thing from the thing. And it's like it's illustrated and that's kind of nice. You get a spark of like, huh, that's fun. Hmm. But I absolutely think that it would be a fun game without any familiarity. If there were just all new things that weren't themed to anything that I know of, I think it would still be an
1: enjoyable game. Yeah. We don't normally do this, but listener Christina went to the trouble of gathering some friends to play The Witches in order to come up with some questions for us. And they arrived only an hour or two after we finished recording. So while we more or less covered some of her questions, I did want to add in an answer to this one. If you could add a card to the deck, what character would you add and what benefit do you think the card might bestow? Now personally, I'd have loved to see some more representation of Boffo in the game. This is not so much a character but, you know, the icon that represents headology is a Grancho Marx style joke disguise that suggests Boffo, but Boffo itself only appears as a word on a poster in the background of the art on Mrs. Proust's card. So I think you could have had cards representing Miss Treason's props, if not Miss Treason herself, because she's, well, she's not around by the time this is happening. Presumably. I mean, you could have added Treason as a good representation of boffo, but anyway, you could have also had a ticking heart, a fake skulls, maybe the green hands and warty face mask. But I think all of those things would probably just have the fairly standard bonus benefit of adding plus two to a dice roll because they are effectively just a better form of headology. A few other characters who might have been fun to include uh, could have been maybe the Bridge Troll from Lords and Ladies. He'd probably also just give a plus two bonus. Uh, you could have Pusey Og and or Princess Esmeralda Margaret, note spelling of Lanka, who might represent an automatic solving of the pregnancy problem. I don't think there's a card that does that, uh, but they might represent, you know, a successful birth. That could be cute or fun. And well, you could also have, I think this is probably the strongest contender, Zack Zack Strong in the Arm. That's the dwarf maker of witch gear who appears in a hat full of sky and the sea and little fishes. I'd be tempted to have him let you swap cards with another player, but look, that doesn't really suit him thematically that well. So probably he'd just have the transmutation benefit, which is the one that lets you discard cards and draw new ones, kind of as if you were buying things in his shop. I hope that answers your question, Christina, and we'll try and do a better job of letting you know when the deadline for questions is, although it's not always easy for us to know exactly when we're recording in advance with all of our crazy schedules. That kind of brings us to the end of our discussion of The Witches. Hopefully you've enjoyed this, listener. It's always a bit of a gamble to talk about something as visual and experiential <laughs> as a board game, but as someone who loves games and also hopes to make a whole podcast just about games at some point, it's in the pipeline. I won't say any more about it. This is always a treat for me. So thanks, Liz. And thank you, Steve, for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was great to be back. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Is there anything you're doing that you'd like people to be aware of? Not really.
2: Not not these days. Um, yeah, just support artists in any way you can. I think playing board games and supporting people that are making board games is like a very nice endeavor. I love playing them, so you should do more.
1: Do you have any favorites that you'd like to recommend? Maybe mm. we can do that as a as a sort yeah, of. Yeah, I think. Off.
2: Uh, I mean, one that I've been enjoying lately is Wingspan, which obviously a lot of people probably know about. But if you don't, it's also a great game to play with people who maybe have like minimal knowledge of board games. I've introduced it to people that don't play board games recently like too much and they it takes a little bit of explanation for the first round, but then everyone that I've played it with has really enjoyed it afterwards mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, there's so many games, but that's, yeah. Dominion is also one of my favourite games and I think that that's, a, that's also actually not too hard to pick up um, mm. and very replayable.
1: Good uh, gateway game, as we like to call them. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, Liz, did you you want to throw out a recommendation?
2: I
0: always enjoy Castles of Mad King Ludwig because I find it low pressure, but just unusual, at least in the games I've played, because I am quite competitive. I wasn't really today, but... This one I find I don't really care if I win or not as long as I build a weird castle. (laughs) So you kind of go, oh, can I get like a weird dungeon room or that room that's full of spiders? There isn't a room full of spiders. But, you know, the Venus Grotto or something like that, it's just it's fun as you go along and also seeing what everyone else is doing. So I think that's a really enjoyable one and one that I can play repeatedly in one day as well. Yeah, cool. Because your goals change each time a little bit.
1: Hmm. It is a great game. I haven't played it for ages. I played the sort of semi-sequel spinoff, uh, The Palace ah. of King Louis, which is, is different because you're doing the interior decorating rather than building the palace. But it sounds like the same kind of joy, though. It is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although you're all building one big palace.
0: That's even uh, better because you can just make the... Yeah, yeah, it's
1: good. It's good. I would probably... I mean, I've recommended some faves on the podcast before. I love Pandemic. There's lots of different versions of Pandemic, and I think that's what I would say is if you like this kind of cooperative thing, You could play maybe Fall of Rome, which is the pandemic one where you're not curing diseases. You're trying to stop the various tribes of barbarians from overthrowing Rome. That's quite fun. On reflection, I actually think the best game for fans of The Witches is probably another game from pandemic designer Matt Leacock, which is the Thunderbirds board game. You fly around the world saving people from disasters by rolling dice to solve problems effectively. And you can improve your odds with the right cards and gear. So in many ways, it's quite similar. Plus, the playing pieces are a delight and the theme is suitable for all ages. So as it's based on the original puppet based show from the 60s, it does include the rather stereotypical villain, the hood. I'll throw one out there that's not so much a recommendation as one I'm just excited to play because I haven't yet, which is Steam Up, the Dim Sum board game, mm-hmm. which has little plastic Dim Sum steamers <laughs> and a little Lazy Susan that they <laughs> rotate around on the board. And you're playing the animals of the Chinese Zodiac, um, trying to have the best time eating the best Dim Sum. Um, yeah. I think from things you've said on the podcast, Liz, that this might be one that you would enjoy. So Seems we like should play it sometime, I think.
0: One that would need to play while eating.
1: Yes. Also, <laughs> see because I got the deluxe version of that, and it comes with like little rubbery chicken claws oh and um, dumplings and things like that. It's a, it's pretty cute. That sounds That's great. actually really good. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, and thank you, listener for being on this journey with us as we delve into not just the books of Terry Pratchett and the short stories, but now also the games and who knows what else Mm. is on the horizon. Well, we do. We know what's coming in the future. And next month, what's coming is Strata. Yes, we are going all the way back to nearly the start of Pratchett's career as a novelist to read one of his very early science fiction novels from before the Discworld was even published. Although It's kind of the start of the disc world in some ways, but let's not get into that now. That's what next episode is for. So track down a copy of Strata. It's a pretty short book, which is good because, you know, the one we're doing the month after is, as a reminder, The Long Utopia the fourth in the Long Earth series, and, well, as the name might suggest, quite long. So uh, we thought we'd do a short book before we get back to that. So if you've got questions about Strata, that's Pratchat68. You can send them in via social media using that hashtag, or you can email us at chat at pratchatpodcast.com. And if you're reading The Long Utopia, you want to get questions in for that, that will use the hashtag Pratchat69, or, again, you can email us. Uh, And, of course, if you want to be a subscriber and see our unboxing video or any of the other videos or any of the other bonus content, you can do that by heading to our website, PratchatPodcast.com, and going to the Support Us page. You can support us for as little as $2 a month and get yourself a whole bunch of extra bonus stuff. And we're looking at mixing that up a little bit in the near future. We're, We're looking at twitter with our eyes askance and thinking maybe we need to not be so reliant on that for questions so we're hopefully going to be opening the discord up to a few more of our subscribers soon watch out for news about how and if and when that will happen if you are already a subscriber and if you're not now's a good time to jump on board why not but look thank you very much for joining us and until next time may you roll double sixes and not double cackles you've been listening to Pratchat the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchat Elizabeth Flux Ben McKenzie that's me and guest Steve Lamantino Pratchat is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton we're on Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram and Facebook and you can listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchatPodcast.com join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat67 Prat Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast, Splendid Chaps, and time travel comedy series, Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.